Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we bring you the full speaker series talk with Peter Hamby, head of news at Snapchat. Over the next hour, you'll hear from Peter on Snapchat's role in the 2016 election, including how news organizations are partnering with Snapchat to cover the campaign, and which presidential candidates have been most successful using the app to connect with potential voters. So welcome. Uh, I'm Tom Patterson. I'm the acting uh, director of the Shorenstein Center. Um, And we're just delighted to have uh, Peter back with us. Peter was a Shorenstein Center fellow a couple of years ago, uh, head of news at Snapchat, uh, wrote what I think is probably the best piece since Timothy Krause's Boys on the Bus as to what's going on in the campaign trail, wrote it for us. It got a lot of attention. did Twitter kill the boys on the bus uh, is the title of that piece. Uh, uh, Peter started his career, I guess, probably freelancing, actually, but <clears throat> then with CNN uh, helping to start the situation room with Wolf Blitzer. I shouldn't editorialize, but I think it's gone downhill since you left, Peter. <laughs> I think, uh, it's not quite the same <clears throat> as it used to be. Uh, but then for CNN, uh, covered the 2008 campaign, the 2012 campaign, uh, kind of became uh, one of the go-to reporters on the campaign trail for other reporters as well as uh, for many of the people who were following uh, the campaign. Uh, And now is, as I indicated, uh, head of news at uh, Snapchat. And uh, Peter, we're delighted you're here. Glad to be here. It's it's actually really great to be back here. I felt a little bit like an imposter when I was a (laughs) Shorenstein fellow. It seems seemed like it was beyond my beyond my years to get that, but it it was really wonderful experience um, learning from people like Tom. Uh, I think that the the velocity of of campaign coverage these days in in twenty twelve just doesn't give you a lot of time to step back and breathe and think about the process, and, and this place gave me a real opportunity to do that. Um, and uh, the, the paper I wrote that Tom mentioned um, was, you know, I, I thought it would be just sort of like a 20-page thing when I sat down to write it, like two weeks before it was due. Um, and it was 97 pages in the end. Um, but it was born out of, of a lot of, like, just the behavioral changes that I observed, uh, both on the campaign side and the journalist side, uh, from having covered the 2008 presidential campaign, which was my first presidential campaign, and felt very lucky and privileged to cover that. I was, a, I was an embed for CNN, uh, which means you sort of travel around the country, you know, writing blog posts then. Um, now tweeting, Snapchatting, whatever, in addition to shooting video, writing long pieces, going on TV, doing radio hits, all of the above, uh, that kind of backpack journalist model. But in 2008, I I was talking to a former McCain guy the other night, and he he called it like the last, last great campaign because, you know, we got to talk to the candidates all the time, and and you kind of don't get to do that anymore. Um, And in 2012, I had a, a little bit more of an elevated role at CNN and spent a lot of time covering Romney. And, and Romney was a guy you just had no access to at all. Um, 
and the reasons were many. He was cautious guy. Um, his campaign was pretty combative and skeptical of the media. Their campaign manager actually one, you know, his Bible is out of order by Tom Patterson. Um, in part, one, one of his go-to mantras was that Roger Ailes uh, orchestra pit theory. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but uh, this is also in Tom's book. But a set, the, <laughs> the, the theory of the case here is that if two candidates are standing on a stage and one candidate says, I have a solution for Middle East peace, and the other candidate falls in the orchestra pit, what's the media going to cover? And the answer is pretty obvious. And that was sort of Roger Ailes' operating philosophy as a, as a media strategist and a television executive. Um, and that was the Romney campaign strategy, too. They thought there was no upside to talking to the media because you could talk about the alternative minimum tax or Planned Parenthood or whatever, and the only thing the press was going to cover was Mitt Romney's mom jeans or <laughs> what he ate for lunch that day or whatever perceived gaffe came out of his mouth. Um, and, uh, you know, I hate to say this as a, as a reporter, but he has a point or they had a point. I mean, the yeah, I sympathize with a lot of folks that work in politics. A lot of these guys are practitioners of, of dark arts and spin and, and, you know, duping the American public. But, you know, there's a lot of bad reporting out there, too. <coughs> Um, and so they, they were in a tough spot. And so I, just sort of witnessing that and living it uh, turned into um, this really long paper, uh, <laughs> which, you know, basically uh, said that, you know, campaign politics is driven by, campaign journalism rather, is driven by a lot of young journalists who don't have a ton of campaign experience and operatives don't want to deal with them. And what are you left with? You're left with kind of a broken process about, you know, silly stories that win the day on Twitter and drive news cycles, and it starts all over again every six hours. Um, there's upsides to it and there's downsides to it, but I encourage you all to read it. It's really long, <laughs> <laughs> but it's free. <laughs> it's on the internet. Um, and then, yeah, as Tom mentioned, I worked at CNN. I left CNN in May to take a job at Snapchat. And I'm happy to walk through Snapchat for anyone here that doesn't get it or doesn't get how news can exist on Snapchat. Um, but I think hopefully I can convey today that it is genuinely a really powerful platform for video um, and is honestly where young people today are living. I think if you're under the age of 25, uh, if you ask anyone who's under the age of 25 how many times a day they use Snapchat, they will tell you, at least a dozen and probably 25 times or more minimum. Um, and uh, I have been stopped on the street now uh, almost 10 times by random people who say, you're the Snapchat guy. <laughs> and they just, they know me. Like that's where they spend their day is on their phone inside Snapchat. That didn't happen at CNN, um, <laughs> which is, which is kind of nuts to think about. Um, so anyway, I'm happy to, I would rather just dive right into Q&A than pontificate and just answer questions you guys have about 2016 campaign, how journalists operate today on the <coughs> campaign trail, um, how campaigns behave, how they use digital media to both end run the press and engage with the press. Um, and also I can talk about Snapchat as well because that's also a little bit of an object of fascination mm -hmm. right now too. So thank you for having me. and.
Any questions you have? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I have the luxury of asking the first question, even though I'm not a student, mm -hmm. Brian. So um, when we were talking <clears throat> before we came in the room, they, um, you were asking an interesting question as to sort of how much it matters to be on the ground in Iowa, New Hampshire, as opposed to being on Fox and these other media. I mean, are, are, is the role of the kind of the early contest changing in terms of the kind of, they're obviously going to be first in the sequence, and, and mm -hmm. that's kind of written in stone, but uh, in terms of how candidates think about those places, is that changing fundamentally? So um, campaigns, the ones I talk to, um, still believe in building a substantial field operation in the early states. That's still the name of the game. You have to win Iowa or New Hampshire or both to be in the game. Um, I think some people think that theory will be tested this cycle um, because there's so many candidates and there's so much money uh, that you know you could lose one of the first two states and maybe, maybe you win South Carolina, uh, maybe you win Florida, maybe you win somewhere on March 1st, March 15th. Um, I still think the way the media behaves is that you uh, get a ton of momentum off a win, and that carries you. So th the campaigns get that. The, the question I think you're getting at is how much time do the candidates themselves have to spend there shaking hands? And I think that in a place like Iowa and South Carolina, you actually don't necessarily need to do that. Um, Rick Santorum thinks he can do that, and he did that in 2012. If you remember, he went to all 99 counties in Iowa and you know, had organizations in every county. Um, and that is sort of, in his telling of the story, why he won in the end. The real reason he won in the end is because conservatives in that state you know, had a flavor of, of the month every month for the duration of that campaign cycle. And Rick Santorum was the final guy who was not Mitt Romney, who peaked at the right time. Um, in New Hampshire, I think it's a little different. Um, I think that you see people like Chris Christie, who's working very hard there. Um, I think they think that the John McCain model of do you know, several hundred town halls can carry you. Um, I, I hope that is still true. Um, John McCain's old gang doesn't think it's true. They think John McCain was like singular in his ability to win over people one at a time like that. Um, but I think that, like, you know, we could spend the whole hour talking about Donald Trump, but I think Donald Trump um, is is sort of showing that you actually don't need to do that. Like, Donald Trump doesn't do town halls in New Hampshire. Donald Trump, <laughs> no, he shows up to New Hampshire, but he gives, like, a big, rowdy speech, mm -hmm. and then he flies out, yeah. and he's winning. Um, so I, I'm, I'm interested to see what, what happens here. I think that... Um, one thing we are seeing, and this is a little separate from your question, is that with people like Bernie Sanders and with Donald Trump, um, they are actually really refreshing. I think Frank Rich wrote a piece about this in New York Magazine this week, um, and I think he's dead on that, that he is, these, these are the candidates we deserve, right? <laughs> like the, pro the political process, is the, the campaign process is not a holy, you know, sainted process. It is not a dignified process. Governing is one thing. Campaign politics is about personalities. It's about gaffes. 
Um, so when the Washington press corps was righteously offended that Donald Trump was winning without talking about the issues, it's like what, what campaigns have you guys lived through? <laughs> campaigns aren't about issues. They're just not. Um, but Bernie Sanders is, is sort of you know showing that by being authentic and not playing by the rules that – you know, you can be you can beat someone like Hillary Clinton, and I think that's pretty powerful. I would like I think a lesson from this campaign, hopefully for the future, is that if you just say what you believe in and talk about it, um, that you can be rewarded for that. So, please. Uh, I'm Monica Guzman. I'm a Neiman Fellow for journalism. Oh, cool. Um, so, yay, fellow. Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm not terribly familiar with Snapchat. I okay. know it's very popular. It's the first app that makes me feel really old. <laughs> I hear that all the time. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but, uh, so you were talking about the quality of campaign coverage mm -hmm. being fairly low uh, in a bunch of respects. Can, can a platform like Snapchat, and people have been talking about this with regard to Twitter and Facebook, but what is the pathway that an app like Snapchat can help actually elevate the conversation in, in some way. Yeah, sure. I think that, um, one, I, and I hear this from campaigns too, Snapchat gets sort of lumped in with Twitter and Facebook as like another social media platform, and it is to an extent. It's a great way to communicate with your friends and share pictures and video with your friends too. We're also a broadcasting entity. Um, if you if you look in Snapchat, uh, there's, two, uh, there's two avenues to sort of engage with the news. One is what we call Discover, which is a series of... Uh, publishing partnerships we have with places like CNN, ESPN, National Geographic, Daily Mail, Mashable, BuzzFeed. Uh, and basically all of those companies provide, curate and provide content every day for the audience. Um, millions of people watch that stuff every day, millions. Um, the other is what I'm working on, um, which are our live stories. Um, and this might take a while to explain if you don't use Snapchat, but um, basically we have the ability to uh, capture and harness and broadcast videos um, from everyone who's a Snapchat user in any given location. So whether it's a Democratic or Republican debate, whether it's the papal visit to Philadelphia, whether it's the Greek elections, um, Basically, we are able to put up what we call a geofence around a certain location. And every Snapchat user, and Snapchat is built to capture videos, right? So every time you open Snapchat, it opens to a camera. You can submit to that story that we have fenced. And on our end, we basically are able to curate all of that video, um, pick the best moments, you know, add <coughs> graphics, rely on the community to add <coughs> graphics with our geofilters. <coughs> and then broadcast that out to 100 million Snapchat users around the world. Um, it, it is, what I, what I keep saying is that at, at CNN, you know, we would cover an event or an interview with one or two cameras, three cameras. Um, at Snapchat, we have everyone's camera <coughs> at, at our disposal. Um, so in telling those stories, because the audience is so young, I think that I kind of view this, view our mission here as, as educational almost. Snapchat is not going to be the place where we're going to break like incremental staffing news, right? Like or processy campaign stories. Um, but there are millions of first time voters using the platform. Three quarters of Snapchat's audiences over the age of 18.
but most of them are between 18 and 34. Um, and, and these are people who are not watching television news. They're not reading the New York Times. They're not reading the Washington Post. They might not even be using Facebook that much, to be honest. Um, but they are living in Snapchat. So there's this huge audience. We're building an editorial structure on top of them and alerting them to things happening in the world. We did a story on the Greek uh, referendum uh, over the summer, which is not an easy thing to distill into a cascade of 10-second snaps and you know very short animations. I mean, this was you know European fiscal policy. <laughs> um, but if you went on Twitter that day, you know there were lots of young people saying, "Wow, I just learned learned about this this thing. I had no idea what was happening." Or I learned more about this than I did from reading about it somewhere else because we know who our audience is and we're able to distill these issues into a vernacular that for them is, is useful and interesting. Uh, 15 million people watch a live story every day on Snapchat around the world. Um, that's, that's, that's an amazing tool. <laughs> uh, so I, I feel really lucky that I get to sort of steer that coverage. A lot of the focus right now is on uh, is on politics. We're do definitely doing lots of other things. We did a story on the 10th anniversary of Katrina, papal visit. Um, lot, millions of people viewed those, of course, but uh, it, it is really interesting to sort of take the temperature of Twitter every now and then, and and people are, are learning about the candidates from Snapchat, mm -hmm. which is which is kind of interesting. I'm James Geary. I'm the deputy curator of the Neiman Foundation. Um, you said earlier that campaign coverage is not, or campaigns are not about issues. <laughs> Should they be about issues? And if so, can social media like Snapchat further that process? Um, does it make it worse? I think so. Um, we did a story. I mean, yes, they should be about <laughs> issues. It's just the world we live in, you know? Um, we did a story a couple weeks ago um, about the Iran deal um, in the campaign. So basically, Hillary gave a speech at Brookings in Washington. Uh, Trump and Cruz spoke at a big rally against the deal on the uh, on Capitol Hill. Um, Jeb was in North Carolina. Ben Carson was in Anaheim. Um, Basically, we were able to put up what I, a fence around all these places and pull in video from all of those places, from the candidates, from journalists, from people on the ground, from voters, um, and also built, um, you know, artwork, graphics, text, animation on top of that. And it became a four-minute explainer about the Iran deal, what it is. What does the U.S. get? What does Iran get? Um, where do the candidates stand on it? So it was a sort of this... Um, a combination of video pictures and artwork that again was just very it was all that was all user generated that explained this issue to people who again aren't consuming news in a traditional way so I think there's value in that I really do I mean like a a 19 year old um, may not come across what the Iran deal is but if it's in their face in Snapchat where they're living all day I, I, I kind of see that as a, as a social good I think that's a that's a good thing um, we're, I don't think we necessarily need to aspire to be all things I think places like CNN and NBC I mean these are these are places that have 
huge editorial infrastructures and budgets and they can run a website and TV shows and special, they can buy documentaries from other people. Um, other news organizations don't necessarily need to do that. I think it's okay that our mission is to illuminate these issues for young people. Um, you know, and look, it's still early for us. As ubiquitous as Snapchat is, like it's actually still a startup with a few hundred employees. Um, and we have meetings all the time with people that are like, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. And it's like, well, we, we thought about that, we're getting there, like, mm -hmm. take your time. We're just getting started. I started a few months ago. Um, so, you know, that's not to say we won't get into doing more serious, complicated things, but I think, I think we're, at a, we're starting in a good place. Please. <coughs> My name is Joel Sullivan. I know the election is only is a year away. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm concerned whenever Trump's name comes up in the group, there's either laughter or smile of rolling the vibes. And that scares me a little bit because there are too many people who are just standing on the sidelines. I guess my question to you is how do you see him developing over this next year? Short of a major gaffe that he might make, but we hope he, I hope he makes. Well, he's made plenty. <laughs> do you like Trump? No. Okay. Um, I think if you go to any Trump event, uh, there are lots of people there who um, really like him. I think there's lots of people there who are just there out of curiosity, seriously. But, I mean, the guy filled up American Airlines Arena in Dallas. He filled it up. That's insane at this point in the campaign. Um, you know, that's like Obama-level crowd. Um, look, I think that he's a vehicle right now for deep discontent um, with the American political process, with, uh, uh, you know, the economy. Um, and again, this is, it's mostly on the GOP side. I think there's some independence in there too. I, but I don't, I just really don't see it sustaining itself for another year, like you said. I think this gets to Iowa, New Hampshire, um, my thing with Trump is it, he stands up there and calls everybody a loser all the time. <laughs> what happens when he starts to become a loser, right? Like what happens when Carson and Fiorina start to lap him in Iowa and he's in second place and in third place, right? Does he, does he drop out and save face? Because he literally, in every speech, it's all about how he's got a huge lead in all the polls. <laughs> it's, all, it's all about the polls. I'm winning in the polls. Um, so what happens when he's not? Um, I think that 40% of Republican voters are either with Carson or Trump. Um, I think we're all expressing shock about that, but it wasn't that much different in 2012. It, you know, there were just different candidates serving as vehicles for that populist frustration on the right side of the spectrum. Um, but I don't think he gets there, but I also don't think we should rule it out. Sorry, that's a vague answer, but... I, I think it's like one 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 failure of, of political journalism is that everyone's so smart and everyone has a prediction for everything. Like everyone's been wrong about Donald Trump. Like when he said the McCain thing about like how he doesn't like John McCain because he got caught. <laughs> oh, he's done. No. The rapist thing, we thought he was done. The Megyn Kelly thing, we thought he was done. He's still in the game. Like, he's still winning the Republican primary. Do you think he actually wants to be president? I don't know about that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. What kind of candidate plays well on Snapchat, and 
what campaigns are adapting well to communicating in like a form that works on um, you know, honestly, the two best candidates were, are and were Scott Walker and John Kasich. And uh, the reason being was that um, they had college, they have, they have kids. Kasich has, has kids who are in high school and Walker had two college age students who traveled around with him snapping. Like, uh, it, it just really takes somebody that age who knows the platform that well to just nail it. Um, and so they would do kind of great behind-the-scenes videos. Um, they realized that Snapchat had this ability to capture moments, intimate moments, funny moments, uh, an ability to kind of take you there, take you to a place you wouldn't otherwise go. Um, ben Carson is starting to get it. <laughs> but look, as with any campaign, you have to um, – like political campaigns are not the same as brands, right? They're, brands want to target um, – but campaigns really want to target. They want to know who you are, how old you are, what, how many primaries have you voted in, um, what kind of car you drive, all this granular stuff that we're used to in like a, in a Facebook and Google world. Um, so you have to kind of show them uh, what they get out of it. Um, and I think with, with live stories, uh, you know, these are, these are stories that are being broadcast to 15, 20 million people many of them first-time voters who are not watching CNN, Fox, New York Times, Politico, whatever. And you say to them, look, <laughs> use Snapchat a lot. You're going to get in, in these stories and reach, reach these voters. Um, and they are. Uh, but I think there's still – I think people are still feeling it out. Honestly, the best person I've seen on Snapchat who is even approximates a political figure is Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> Does anyone follow Arnold Schwarzenegger on Snapchat? Anyone? <laughs> Okay, if anyone on here is on Snapchat, <laughs> please go follow Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, he does like selfie videos, and he'll be like, "I'm on the Today Show today," and and it's it, it's fascinating, it's funny, um, and it illuminates like what he's doing and where he's at that day, and in a in a way, and he uses it in a way that regular people use Snapchat. Um, it's it's people who use Snapchat in kind of like an artificial way and just think of it like another. Instagram or something where it's like here's an infographic that's just not how people use snapchat um, so all of that is to say there's room to grow for for candidates um, look the other thing too is that Republicans um, right now they want to win Iowa they want to win New Hampshire and South Carolina um, who votes in those primaries you know older people uh, they're not using Snapchat necessarily. So I think that'll change a little bit in the general election. Um, the Dems get it a little more because their voters are younger and using Snapchat. Please. Mm -hmm. well, my name is Samad. I'm investing Harvard for a week uh, as a guest of the evidence for policy design. And I'm about to finish my undergrad degree and going to start my career in journalism as a data journalist with the Hindu newspaper name. Cool. So I am actually, for, I have an engineering background. So my question is regarding when you are say hundreds and thousands of users are sending you, uh, say, videos, like how are you curating it? Is it like a manual process or an automated process? Yeah. Because essentially, at the end of the day, if I want to tell users about, say, the Syria crisis, maybe an explainer what, say, Vox Media does, can also serve the process of educating the... Yeah, the totally. But essentially, how does getting all this media help Snapchat to uh, explain the users about the context of the news 
Um, well, I think so. The first part of your question is like how we do it. Um, the basically, again, we put up a fence around, say, uh, the city of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast, and you know, essentially, we were able to kind of draw that in, on a map, and it syncs up with our existing engineering architecture. Um, and pull in video from people who choose to submit it, right? There's a disclaimer. It's like if you submit this, it, you know, we, you know, Snapchat can use it in a live story and we can showcase it to, you know, our users. Great. Um, it's all manually curated. And this is one reason that I was drawn to Snapchat uh, was we live in this sort of feed-based, algorithm-driven news world where you go on Facebook and it tells you articles that you think you want to read and you actually kind of don't. Um, with Discover, we're empowering publishing platforms. Uh, again, places like CNN, ESPN, uh, they're editors. They're making an editorial decision. These are the 10 pieces of content. These are the 10 stories, 10 videos that we think you would be interested in today. Um, in that sense, it feels like a, like the front page of a newspaper, which I, which I kind of like. Um, and then with live stories, uh, you kind of got to make the cut, right? Like I have, an, I have a team that I've hired of former journalists and political junkies who are curating the best moments from uh, either the 10th anniversary of Katrina Day or, you know, all the campaign events when we did the Iran deal story to, um, you know, fit a story. So, I mean, essentially, like, when you put together a TV package, you have all of this video. You pick the best video. You pick the best graphics. You pick the best moments. You pick the best sound. We're doing the same thing. It's just that the content is user-driven as opposed to stuff that over-the-shoulder photographers shot. Um, and then we're able to craft it into an explainer and showcase to people. Um, so it's all opt-in, too. Like, you can choose to watch it. You know, it's put in front of you. Um, but it'll be alongside uh, NFL Draft, New York Fashion Week, uh, GOP Debate, and then whatever else, uh, you know, Paris, you know? And you can, you can choose what to watch. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. That's big for him. But two hundred people in the room for a Hillary event and talking seriously about substance abuse problems and addiction in New Hampshire, and it was boring. So I guess my question is, if you were advising either of those campaigns on how to use Snapchat, what would you what would you say to, to Hillary? What would you say to uh, a person who's perhaps in a death spiral like Lindsey Graham, mm -hmm. who does have South Carolina? Uh, so he no, he's not going to win there either. It's, it's okay. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's telling. He told the eleven of us that. <laughs> what would? How would you advise these candidates? First, yeah. First of all, Lindsey Graham is might be my favorite candidate to cover right now because he. He talks in these very about these very doom and gloom things, but he's kind of sunny about it. He's really fun. You want to hang out with him? Likes to drink. Um, look, I think again, Snapchat has because there's no production cost. It's super easy. You shoot a video, it takes ten seconds, um, and it can be with you at any point because the camera's in your pocket. With an issue like substance abuse. Um, this is a little heavy, maybe, for the audience, because look, people use Snapchat. They, it, it's fun, right? There's a reason you guys use it. It's fun. Um, but 
show us what you're talking about, right? Like, go somewhere where people are struggling with these issues. Um, maybe you identify one of your campaign volunteers who, uh, you know, has is confronting some of this stuff in her own family or her, with one of her friends. Give them the account for a day. Show us what it's really like. That's that's what I would do instead of just you talking about it. It doesn't. People don't trust politicians. You know, I would just say that like, let 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 your interns take over the account for a day. You know, they get it, and then have them talk about the issue and show us. That that's that's the only advice I would give them because you can always see the riser to podium speech. You can see that anywhere. You can see that on C-SPAN, CNN, whatever. Um, but this this can get in people's homes and people's cars, um, you know, where, wherever you want to take it. That that's that that's what my advice would be. Yeah, uh, David. Yeah. Uh, Peter, uh, uh, I'm David Ensor. I'm a Sharnstein fellow. But Peter and I were at CNN together some years back. He gave me his old his baseball tickets. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so he has to be nice. Um, I'm wondering uh, uh, how it, if you see social media, journalism on social media, changing the nature of what's news, mm -hmm. or what people uh, what people are interested in, or how they're interested. And for example, the, the sort of the bad rap on t TV news was if it bleeds, it leads, mm -hmm. right? I mean, bad news sells, and, and, and we used to go around telling each other, and I still do sometimes, well, that's human nature, you know, mm -hmm. so. And I remember being in Afghanistan where I was a diplomat and saying to my former colleagues, television reporters, you know, one of them came to me and said, you know, um, I'm here to do five bang-bang stories in two weeks, you know. And I said, do you think that's going to, the, the, the banging is going to decide this thing in Afghanistan? He said, of course not. It's all about does the Afghan state get its act together? How does USAID do? You know, can they get a, a railroad to the mining area? Those kinds of questions. I said, Why aren't you doing those stories? And he said, I can't get them on the air. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so tell me, how is social media, if it is, changing what is news? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there was a there's a piece in Politico recently that sort of blamed all the ills on, and and sorry for going keep going back to politics because it's sort of my beat, but blamed all the ills of of campaign coverage on on social media that it turns everything into a listicle and a shareable headline, um, and it's all about gaffes and, and small things as opposed to big things. Um, but again, one of the benefits of being here and taking the time to read about past campaigns and reading Out of Order by Tom Patterson that everyone here should read, none of that stuff is new. I think that, to your point, you know, whether it's TV news or tabloid newspapers or muckraking era journalism, I, I think that human instinct has always been drawn toward the sensational, right? Um, I, I think that, I, I think news organizations in the internet era um, kind of have responsibility to like have the clicky fun stuff live alongside serious stuff. Like there's not, there's no limit to space on the internet. Right, like, right. There should be uh, long, sober, uh, deeply reported stuff that lives alongside the clickbait. The clickbait kind of has to be there. Like that's that's how people are making money now, um, and they're making money with sponsored content. Uh, 
but I, I think that fundamentally all the the bad impulses of journalism that we collectively deride today have kind of always been there. Do you, I mean, do you disagree? <coughs> No, you've got to you've got to draw in an audience. Yeah, and, and, and then and then you serve them the meat and potatoes alongside the other stuff. They can't um, ha just have dessert. You have to get exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think that but so what, so much what of I'm asking sorry is, what, is between bad news and good news, <laughs> right? Because uh, in in the television television news, news is high, heyday. Mm -hmm. There's one piece of bad news after another. And networks would do studies and focus groups and find that if they switch to a happy story or something positive, everybody leaves. It's like putting an ad on, you know, you start. And so I, I, I'm wondering what happens with, in the, in the social media news era yeah. with that. Well, I think with Twitter. Um, Funny stories, positive stories. Well, I, when, when I was writing this paper, one of the great interviews I did was with Joe Klein. And Joe Klein said, who's a... Time Magazine. Is he still Time Magazine? Yep. Yeah. He said the hardest thing to do in, tw this is 2013, the hardest thing to write in 2013 is a good story. No, no one wants to read that. Like, and if you write with Twitter a positive story about someone, you get torn down by the trolls who are like, oh, you're in the tank, right? You're biased. Um, I think that Twitter has, has made the tone of the coverage uh, more negative. Pew has done studies on this, that Twitter is a uniquely toxic, negative space, and it is. Um, people are always either trying to one-up somebody else, prove that they're smarter than somebody, tear somebody down. Um, I use Twitter, <laughs> that's not true. I was going to say I use Twitter less than I did a couple years ago. That's not true. Um, <laughs> uh, journalists live there, right? And I, I just think that it's it's change the incentive structure of the kind of stories that that get written. I think that you want to write stories that will get shared and clicked on more. Um, I think those are very often personality driven. Uh, your instinct is to be a troublemaker um, as opposed to tell you something you didn't necessarily know or illuminate an issue. Um, I, I think Twitter is actually a pretty significant culprit in that in that respect, um, because most most Americans don't use Twitter, they just don't. I think like twenty three percent of online Americans use Twitter, and and what does that even mean, right? Like maybe you have Twitter on your phone, maybe you read it, um, but you're not actively tweeting. Uh, but journalists use Twitter, and all these sort of discrete communities of experts use Twitter, and I think they're all trying to promote themselves and their work. <laughs> and one-up each other and prove that you're smarter. It could be in fashion journalism, it could be in political journalism, it could be in you know, foreign policy, but um, I, I think that's a big focus of the paper I wrote, was just that Twitter was not used in the 2008 campaign. That's not to say journalism in 2008 was great, um, but this sort of personality-driven negativity wasn't there in the same way in 2008 as it was in, in 2012. Dorothy. Um. Thank you very much. I don't use Snapchat, but I'm going to rush home and try it. Um, <laughs> if I could, I'd like to add a historical footnote and the answer did Twitter kill boys on the bus. In the mid-1960s, I was what was then called the head section man for the most popular course of Dr. Arts and Sciences, which was Eric Erickson's Life Cycle. T 
Tim Krause was writing for the Crimson then, and I got to know him because the head of the Harvard Health Services was campaigning against marijuana, why it was the infinite evil, and my husband was a professor of psychiatry in favor of marijuana, how you criminalize it. Mm -hmm. So I got to know Tim, who was writing about this quite well. And later I learned that both he and Sandy Van Oka, who was a big ABC correspondent then and afterwards, said what killed the boys on the bus were women. <laughs> and the minute the women got on the bus with the men, the conversation changed. And it had been a frat house of guys looking for girls, fixing each other up, sometimes the president, sometimes other people. But the women got on the bus, and they couldn't talk like that anymore. And it was the end of that fraternity. So before Twitter came the women. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There are... Um, so many talented female journalists covering campaigns now. Right. It's just, it's, it's the way it is. Um, yeah, no, I mean, that's, I agree. <laughs> Over here, I think it's hard to get in back Hi. here. Yeah. Uh, my name is Kelly Wilson. I work um, in, with HKS Fundraising, and thank you for talking. I hadn't actually heard so much about Twitter getting involved with news coverage, and I was curious for a platform that or it seems to be a more neutral platform, how how your team thinks about not politicizing Snapchat. Yeah. Is that the Well, I think, I think one reason they, they wanted to get into um, news, look, I mean, like, if, you, if you're on Snapchat, um, there's, there's live stories about sports and concerts and, and all kinds of, of fun things, and when they wanted to get into news, I think, um, you know, they wanted to, want to do it right. They wanted they wanted to hire people who were sort of understood the way things were going and understood digital journalism, et cetera, but were sort of steeped in, in more traditional values of um, you know fairness and objectivity. Uh, it is interesting though. We did a story after the same-sex marriage ruling came down um, in June, June twenty-sixth. If you are under the age of 30, 81%, 81% of under 30s support same-sex marriage. Like it's a settled issue for them. Um, and beyond being a settled issue in the eyes of the law too. But uh, we basically put up our fences in Chelsea and Boys Town, South Beach, like you know all the fun places and got all of this celebratory content um, and it, it was an amazing panorama of celebratory reaction to the same-sex marriage ruling, um, which was really the flavor of the whole story. And this was like literally one of my first weeks on the job, and I was running point on this. Um, it was really cool. It was really, really cool. And again, if you're using Snapchat, chances are you're under 30 and probably under 25, and you agreed with the same-sex marriage ruling. Um, it, it was. It, this is the other thing that's cool about Snapchat. We were putting up fences around county courthouses in places like Texas and Arkansas, where it's now legal, and we were capturing gay marriages. And we we're getting pictures that TV cameras weren't able to get, and they were in the story. Like uh, that's really neat and powerful. Um, but you know, thirty percent of the country still opposes same-sex marriage, uh, and that really wasn't present in the story. Um, I was kind of okay with that because the audience was almost 
<laughs> fully on board with that. Um, but other than a few like issue-based things here and there, um, you know, we are pra we're practicing the same standards that I, I would at, at CNN, um, and that that's the way it should be. I think. Sure. Yeah. hone a little bit sorry so is this the way it's always been right that something new comes along and only the interns understand it? <laughs> <laughs> or are we in a radically different <coughs> moment now um, and then you know how do we kind of make sure that these tools mm -hmm. are um, kind of democratically understood mm -hmm. or widely understood and shared and that we're not um, creating so many individual town squares that we're yeah. as a nation kind of, and generational town squares, right? And right. so that we're as a nation um, incapable of having kind of broad conversation. Right. Um, so I think that to your second point, I think places like, look, studies have shown this over and over and over again over the last five, six years, it, like social networks encourage people to talk to like-minded people. Um, I I think that because those places have a choose your own news um, kind of ecosystem, uh, and, and Snapchat does too, but we are the ones telling the stories, right? Like the way to think about Snapchat is like television broadcasting before DVR. It's about big moment events. Uh, award ceremonies like the Emmys, big football games, um, groundbreaking world elections, the Pope is visiting somewhere, etc. And you kind of have to be there. And the stories are only there for 24 hours and then they go away. Um, that, to me, makes it feel a little different than I'm in this sort of hive mind of Facebook where I'm just reading Red State Weekly Standard links and sharing them with my like-minded friends. Um, as to whether it's just like a truly groundbreaking signal moment. I, I, I don't know yet. I think that I don't want to raise expectations for Snapchat too much, but I do think that mobile is 100% where things are going. Um, there was a Kleiner Perkins study that came out a couple months ago that said in 2011, Americans spent 2% of their daily screen time 
camera or TV, desktop, phone, in front of their phone. 2015, 30%. So basically, that's a huge increase. And that's only where things are going in the next few years. Next year, it'll be 40%. The year after that, it'll be 50%. Um, so I think, generally speaking, like the mobile moment is, is happening, and we're living it and grappling with it. And that's and Snapchat is definitely part of that conversation. Um, I, I do find it challenging that I come to places like this, or I go to a newsroom, or I go to a political campaign, and um, with Snapchat, you either get it or you don't. And if you, it, it's and it's extremes, right? It's like you you like really don't get it. Like, what is this? But I take heart in the fact that I remember when I signed up for Twitter in two thousand seven. Everyone in Washington was like, what is Twitter? I don't get it. I remember being working for the Situation Room, and I went up to a senior person at CNN, and I pitched a story about how John Edwards, remember him? He was awesome. Uh, was using Twitter to like announce to people where he was traveling to. And this very senior person at CNN looked up the computer and said, Never say the word Twitter around me ever again. <laughs> sure. And then two years later, CNN has a whole show based on Twitter, that Rick Sanchez show. Remember that? Um, so it, it feels it feels more like that to me, to be honest. I think people people will get it. I think, you know, hopefully we'll have a moment where we can really showcase to the world the kind of access to video that we have. Look, I think I used an example earlier today. We did a story on the Hajj last week, um, and Snapchat is really popular in the Middle East, and we had people inside the Grand Mosque shooting videos of what it was like to be at the Hajj. And those are, those are pictures that Westerners haven't ever seen. Like, that's amazing, um, because they're the ones empowered. They're the ones shooting and sharing the video and sending it to us. And then we kind of shape it and broadcast it. Um, so I think that more people, the more people learn about, the, in, our, in our community, learn about that kind of power, I think the more they'll be engaged with it. Um, I, think, I think the, the challenge is that you have to be, it, there's no links attached, right? Like, which is a little bit confusing to people. They're used to clicking on a link and seeing something. Snapchat, you have to like go into the platform. And then once you're in the platform, it's like you can talk to your friends, you can share videos with your friends, you can watch sporting events, you can read CNN, you can read ESPN, you can watch the Hajj, you can watch the GOP debate. Um, but I think it's like just reframing how people think about consuming information. Um, yeah, sorry, that was a little bit of a ramble, but I'm just not sure yet. Madeline. Mm-hmm. To what extent, like in a few years, could we see it being like Twitter, like the place we have to be as a reporter to have a following yeah. and like be? Yeah. Uh, without getting too much into like things coming down the pipe at Snapchat, the answer to your question is yes. <laughs> um, I think that some journalists are 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 adapting it better than others. I think that um, again, the newsrooms that are are doing it right are are harnessing like the younger journalists who are on the road, on assignment, and giving the account over to them. So like um, BBC Panorama did this amazing uh, 
Snapchat story from Sarajevo a couple weeks ago. They were on the ground. It was a crew, and they were gathering elements as they would for their their TV piece. But they were also shooting all of this in the moment um, content from the ground in Sarajevo with with the migrants moving across Europe from Syria. Um, and you know, I was told they're putting that into their own separate documentary that they're making and they're going to put online, which is cool. They did it really well. Some people just are, are getting it. Um, other people are newsrooms and journalists are just treating it like another TV camera, right? Like, it's like they're shooting like a pan shot of a stage. And then they're like, they'll draw an arrow and be like, there's Chris Christie. Like, <laughs> it's, not, it's not really built for that. It's built for just being a little more intimate and, and in the moment. Um, but I mean, I'm happy to share with you some journalists that I think are using it well after the fact, I think, um, I, people are still figuring it out that that's, we're still in like education phase. It's still early for us. You know, I'm happy to do things like this to help demystify it, um, because it, it is, it is confusing, but my dad uses it now. So that's a, that's a win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, please. Hi, um, Joseph Lichterman with Nemo I'm a staff writer and oh, cool. Questions, sort of, how are you seeing, I guess, differences in news consumption between the live stories which you guys are producing and the Discover content which is produced by specific What What do you mean differences? In? Sort of, are people using one more than the other, sort of click through rates? Or how are you thinking about how, how the audience is responding to this? Um, I think the, the public stats are that 15 million Snapchatters watch a live story every day. And again, because I don't work specifically on Discover, um, I don't know the exact numbers. Um, I can huddle with you afterwards and give you some more details on that. Yeah, yeah. that'd be great. And yeah. the second thing, you mentioned a couple times sort of the emphasis on sort of young people using to make younger journalists, the presidential candidates with kids are the ones who use it better. <laughs> Is there a way to think about maybe making the interface simpler, sort of how to get those older demographics onto Snapchat? Is that even something you guys are worried about? Um, I think that we have, you know, a very loyal audience of people that's growing, and like I don't, yeah, you know, I, I don't want to get in too much into the weeds of like what we're planning, but I, I just don't think that's something we're necessarily worried about. Yeah. Please. Covering the house and especially covering um, stories where you cannot be on the ground or have very few real journalists. What are you trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot. I mean, everything we project is, is 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 everything we broadcast is is fact checked and you know curated by real journalists that I've hired. Right. Yeah. yeah. On so it's not the the reason we know is because it's it's submitted via Snapchat in that moment in that place, right? Like it's not you can't upload a third party video that's sketchy and then submit it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you, geographically, like 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Without getting into the nitty-gritty of all the engineering aspects of it, basically, if you submit a video from within one of our fences, we know exactly where it came from. That makes sense. But then, like, to the question of, like, fact-checking and authenticity, like, people write, you know, graphics. They write texts onto these, onto these videos. I mean, if you use Snapchat, you can draw on their videos. You can write text on it. You can add geofilters. Um, all that stuff is sort of pretty, is, is rigorously fact-checked or, you know, editorially ace. Again, that's why they, like, hire people like me um, to do that. I'm assuming you get video from Russians and Ukrainians. Well, if we if we put up a fence around Ukraine, yes. <laughs> and then how do you make sure it's real and not, as she was saying, something that's uh, misrepresented? Because it could be from the same area, different time. Right. Look, I mean, body. I think I think we're still again. It's very early for us. We're building a newsroom, figuring out story selection, how we cover things like that. Um, we haven't done it yet. Uh, but we're thinking through those issues. <laughs> we have time for one more yeah. question. Yeah, please in the back. Hi, John. Uh, my name is Steven. I'm an MPA. Uh, I previously was at MTV Nickelodeon, so definitely understand the entertainment. Nice. And my question is around, at the end of the day, Snapchat is a business. How much journalistic freedom do you guys have in the newsroom? How separate are you guys working the moment? Particularly if you're covering something like war or national security no. situation. Totally. I think, honestly, I know for a lot of you guys, like, Snapchat feels like this, um, you know, might, might seem kind of silly or childish or fun or whatever. We have lots of very smart people who have been very deliberate in thinking through a lot of these issues. And literally the first thing that our chief strategy officer said to me when I walked in the door was create good content. There's church state separation. Do whatever you want. And I haven't confronted that at all, like in, in all seriousness. Um, yeah, it doesn't, it, no, no business decision has driven anything editorially that I have done or will do. Peter, thank you. Yeah. <laughs>